touching my soul. I need Thee every hour. My prayer is that that God would help this family of faith, this body of Christ, live like we need Christ. That we would live like it. And people would recognize that, that we are people hungry for Jesus. Breathe on me. Let me pray for us a moment. Father, we need You every hour. We need You every moment. We live in such a fast-paced world. So many distractions. We need You every moment. Lord, would You refocus our lives on You? Breathe on us, Lord. May the breath of God just flood over us. We need You. I need You. Thank You, Lord, for what we've seen and heard. I pray, Lord, that You would continue to draw us ever closer to Your side. As we need You. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, Amen. It is a privilege today to have Dr. John Bowling come and speak to us. He's, he's been a pastor. He's been a professor, an educator. He's been a college president, university president at Olivet since 1991. He has done an outstanding job. He has led the college into some, some of its best days. And I really do appreciate him. Uh, what, what is most important to me about Dr. Bowling is he loves the students at the college and they love him. As a matter of fact, somebody made shirts, I heart Dr. B. I love Dr. B. And they wear them all over the campus because they really do. And it's obvious to them that he loves them. He's even taken time out of his busy schedule to impact my daughters a couple of times through their years. And, and nothing means more to me than that. They needed encouragement, and, and he was there, along with other professors and all of that. I thank God that for the influence that Olivet has had on my daughters. And uh, they, they, are, they are growing in the Lord, partly at least because of their experience at Olivet, and I am forever grateful. Dr. Bowling, come and speak to us this morning. Thank you. Let's welcome him. Thank you, Pastor. Well, it's certainly an honor to be with you today and to share in this service. My spirit has been lifted by the music and the prayer time and just the sense of, of God's presence, and so it's, it's a real joy to be with you. The message today is very simple. It really comes down to three words. Entire sermon is wrapped up in three words. Now, it'll take me a few more words than that. But at the end of the day, if you can lay hold of these words, I believe it's God's message for us this morning. These three words are found in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians in the ninth verse. That verse says, God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. Now, if you had to choose three of those words 
which three would you choose? There are several clusters of words that would speak to us today. I've chosen for us the first and the last two words. God is faithful. God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. That's where our hope and our assurance rests. The truth is, if God is not faithful, if God says one thing and then turns right around and does something else, or if God makes a promise and then somehow it slips his mind, well, we don't have much confidence for the living of our lives. But the truth is, the scripture on this page and on almost every page of the Bible is this clear declaration, God is faithful. If it were possible to flash onto the screens today, this very same verse from a a, a host of other translations, you'd get a sense of the texture wrapped up in that little statement, God is faithful. One of the translators, when he got to that point, just simply wrote, God is utterly dependable. Another writer says, God is entirely trustworthy. Another, God is ever faithful. Another, you can rely on God. I think the message uh, translates it like this. God never gives up on you. Three words. Three words that I think have meaning for each of us as individuals, the living of our lives. Three words for our families, three words for this church and the vibrant ministry that you have here in Fort Wayne, but across the district and really around the world. In all of those avenues, God is faithful. I'm pretty well convinced there's not a person here this morning that doubts that. I mean, I believe you believe that. You probably wouldn't be in church on Sunday morning if you didn't believe that God was trustworthy. But I also know that it's difficult sometimes to daily live our life at the depths of that verse. Because we're living in a world where very little is trustworthy. Promises are made, and even in spite of good intentions, sometimes promises are broken. Or you buy a product and you get home and it doesn't work quite right, and you look on the other side and there's some fine print. Works everywhere but Fort Wayne. You know, how can that be? Um, we live in a world that has a tendency to kind of make us cautious. And so when we step into the kingdom of God, when we begin to live our life, we know that God is trustworthy, and yet sometimes it's very difficult to trust God with our finances or with our health or with our family and all of those areas. When I was a little boy, just um, maybe, I'm sure I was in elementary school, but probably even younger, maybe first grade or so. My older brother, Michael, and I were playing in the backyard of our house. and It was in the summer, and we, we finished whatever we were doing. We came storming into the kitchen. My mother was there, and she was ironing. So she put the iron down and kind of talked to us a little bit about what we were doing. Then she said, you want something to drink? And we said, yes, yes. So she turned her back to get something either from the refrigerator or the sink. I can't remember that part. So I'm standing there by the ironing board, and my older brother is there. And he looked at the iron, and he looked at me, and he looked at the iron, and he looked at me. And then he said to me, hey, John, put your hand on that iron and see if it's hot. And I don't know whether I'd never been around the iron. I don't know why I never hesitated. But when my older brother said, hey, put your hand on the iron, this is what I did. I learned two things that day that I never forgot. 
I learned to never put your hand on a hot iron. And I learned to never fully trust my older brother. (laughs) Anybody here ever get burned? Yeah. It's called life. It happens. Well, because of that, though, it's difficult sometimes to really just plunge in and fully embrace the simple truth of these words. God is faithful. Last night when I got into town, checked in a hotel, uh, got gas and got something to eat. And then I, I drove here to the church. It's dark. Pulled onto that parking lot. Put my car back there so I could look at this place. I thought about you, though I don't know you, really. I thought about your families. I thought, what, what would God want for us today, this week, as it unfolds? I thought about the thousands of people who drive by, these, uh, uh, drive by this church on these highways. And it just seemed to me that if God's Holy Spirit could help us renew our faith in his faithfulness, then our lives would be different. I, I really believe we could face anything and be victorious, even in the dark days of life, if we really grasp this truth, God is faithful. The faithfulness of God is an expression of his character. I mean, it's just who God is. Uh, we can make a great list of all the attributes of God. God is holy. God is just. God is loving. And on through. One of those early attributes. If you're going to know what God is like, you have to put on the list. God is faithful. It never enters God's mind. To make a promise and not keep it. There's not a shadow of turning with him. It's just who God is. It's both an attribute of God. It's part of what makes God, God. And it's an activity of God. That is to say, God will always act in ways that are in keeping or harmony with his character. An unloving God would never be, uh, excuse me, a loving God would never be unloving. A just God would never be unjust. A faithful God will always act in faithful ways. Now, that does not mean that every situation in life will work out just exactly as you or I might wish that it would. I mean, there have been times in my life when I think I've said out loud, I've certainly thought it, well, if I was God, let's give thanks I'm not. You ever feel that way, though? You just know what ought to happen. It doesn't seem to happen. Well, nonetheless, even though we see through a glass darkly, the promise of Scripture is quite clear. God works in all things for our good and for his glory. Why is that? Because God is faithful. Would you say those three words with me? God is faithful. It's his character. It's who he is. It's how he responds. Years ago, I was teaching at Colorado Springs at Nazarene Bible College. My wife, Jill, and I had moved there from Dallas, Texas, and just threw ourselves into the work of that school. And about halfway through the fall semester, we came to fall break, which is a long weekend. Now, students think those breaks are for the students. The truth is, they're for the faculty and staff that kind of catch our breath and all of that. Now, a reasonable person at fall break, particularly his first year teaching college, a reasonable person would have stayed home, and worked to kind of catch up and maybe get ahead of the next week's lectures. That's what a reasonable person would do. But rather than that, my wife Jill and I decided to take that long weekend and drive from Colorado Springs back to Dallas, where we'd left a few months before to see some friends. And you can drive all the way from Colorado Springs to Dallas, Texas in one day if you leave very, very early in the morning 
and you drive to very late at night and you're still in your 20s. You can do it. I was shaped like my car when I got there. But nonetheless, we left early, still dark, left Colorado Springs, drove down along the front range of those mountains. You cut across a little corner of New Mexico into uh, the Texas panhandle. And that vast expanse, we just riding along under or south of the Red River there, coming into Dallas. Not late, but eight, nine o'clock. It was dark and pulled up front of uh, some friend's house. They, they had volunteered to keep us for the weekend. Well, we went in, visited a little bit, had something to eat, and then we just all decided, let's go to bed. We'll catch up tomorrow. Friends, very gracious, they gave Jill and me the master bedroom, their bedroom in the house. And so we turned in very quickly. Now, I don't know, maybe you've had this experience. When you're not home, when you're not in your own bed, you don't sleep quite as well as you do when you're home. And that was happening to me that night, and two or three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and raised up, and just for a moment didn't remember quite where I was. But the lights from the street light came in and illuminated, and I remembered, that's right, I'm in Dallas, I'm at Stephen Anita's house. And so I kind of took a deep breath and, and lay back down in the bed. And as I lay down with my eyes still open, now adjusted to the shadowed light, I saw right in front of me, With my head on the pillow, I saw two tiny feet. Well, I raised up, and there, upside down, in bed between me and Jill, was the little girl, the daughter of our friends, who had been in bed when we arrived. I guess I was sleeping better than I thought, because sometime in the night she got up from her room and came down the hall and went into mom and dad's room and climbed into bed, she thought, with mom and dad. And there she was, upside down, in bed. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I thought, if I wake this little girl in the middle of the night in her parents' room, this strange man, or this stranger, uh, would wake her, she would be in therapy forever. But if I don't do anything, if I just say, well, I'll just go to sleep and pretend I don't know. If she has a nightmare, I wake up with two black eyes. I, I didn't know what to do. And so in the quietness of that moment, I, I, just, I just decided to do what, well, what most of you husbands would do. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I reached over and woke up my wife. <laughs> right? I said, Jill, Stephanie's in bed with us. Jill's very calm. She's, she can handle anything, it seems. And so she said, all right, I'll, I'll take her back to her room. So Jill gets up and she leans over. And I'm still a little worried that the girl's going to wake up and scream in the night. But Jill picks her up. And as she does, Stephanie's eyes get really big. And Jill instinctively, I think, holds her and pats her, whispers in her ear, Stephanie, this is Jill. I'm going to take you back to your room, okay? And the little girl said, Okay. That's all she said. Went down. Jill put her to bed. Jesus said, If if you want to be part of the kingdom, you need to have faith like a little child. To just believe That God is trustworthy. The psalmist said, when my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. There have been times in my life when I 
thought I knew where I was, and I was really with the wrong crowd in the wrong place. And I believe God would have come along and lifted me and called me by name and said, I will take you where you need to be. But what happens in our human nature, we start wrestling with that. I know better, I'll do this or that. And really, we just need to go back to this simple three-word declaration, God is faithful, I can trust him. It's just who he is, it's his character. It's also wrapped up in his calling. The scripture says, God who has called you. Do you see that? God who has called you is faithful. That says to me that whatever God ever asks of you as an individual or asks of you as a congregation, God in that moment pledges himself to help you fulfill that calling. We do not serve a God who has got this world going and then he gets on the sidelines and takes a seat in the stands and folds his arms and says, well, let's just see how they do. No, it's not a spectator God. We serve a God who stepped into human history and continues to be part of our life to to help us. So whatever God asks of you, be assured God is faithful to help you. For example, we, we are all born in sin. The scripture says every one of us has sinned and come short of the glory of God. So there must be a moment in our life When we stop this running from God and we turn and we begin to embrace God. Well, John, the gospel writer, in one of his letters says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you never have to wonder how God will respond at any point in your life when you just simply say, oh, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. God is faithful. He'll forgive you. God is faithful in that he will enable you to live the life he calls us to live. He calls us to live a high, holy life. But he's also the God who empowers us through the coming of his Holy Spirit, who cleanses us. The gospel and the Christian life is not a garment. It's not like me putting on this suit coat today. And inside I'm still the same old person. I just wear this Christianity around. No. The, the, the real work of God's grace is, is a transforming work from the inside out. I'll put in you a new heart, the scripture says. God is faithful to enable you to be the person he calls you to be. None of us are self-sufficient. None of us. If we, if we were self-sufficient, we would have been saved by keeping the law. Just keep the Ten Commandments and that was it. But it's more than that. We're saved by the grace of God who calls us to repentance and obedience and holiness and calls us to service. God may ask of you some things you'll think, oh, I could never do that. Teach a class or do this or speak to someone about their their faith. I can never trust God fully with my finances. Whatever it is, I just want to say to you, God is faithful. It's part of his character. It's part of his calling. It's part of his community. The scripture again, God who has called you into fellowship is faithful. I was in that first service, the pastor talked about it today, where a young woman who went with the ladies to Nashville got out of her seat and came right over here to pray. I tell you, it got all over me. When someone comes to Christ, we've got to surround them and help them. They are babes in Christ. You'd never leave an infant alone. And I just thought this morning, that's exactly what has to happen. People who drive up and down these streets... They're living in a world that has a tendency to beat them down. The church is to lift them up. 
I, I read a story of a, a dad who's having breakfast with his kids before school one day and has a couple of older daughters, but he has a little boy, just maybe kindergarten or first grade. And they're having breakfast and the little guy announces, although he's smiling, the little guy says to the family that morning, I'm going to be sad today. So the dad says, well, Jeffrey, why, why do you want to be sad today? Well, when you're sad at school, all the teachers take turns hugging you. I'm going to be sad today. Well, I just have this sense that the community of God, we are to be the canvas where people see the faithfulness of God. They cannot see God. We're the body of Christ. They must experience the embrace that comes to a new convert or to a neighbor or someone that works at your elbow week in and week out. How will they know unless we tell them? God is faithful to energize your influence, to be salt and light in the world. Three words, very simple words. God is faithful. His character, his calling, his community are all expressions of that. I've seen that played out over and over in my life, in my own life, my family, my life when I was a pastor. I certainly have seen it in the life of Olivet Nazarene University. You know, Olivet began over a hundred years ago as just an idea. A handful of men and women during the first decade of the last century, got an idea. But it was a big idea. It was really a dream. And it was a, it was a God-inspired dream. They, they were standing on the doorstep of the 20th century, and they began to sense around them winds of change. The world was changing. And the world was changing in some fundamental ways, ways that had never happened in the long history of humanity. For example, electricity. Think of the difference. Life was going to be different from then on. Automobiles were showing up on those dirt streets. And don't get me wrong, people were even talking about flying. The world was changing. And it wasn't just changing from a technological standpoint, as dramatic as that was going to be. Maybe more fundamental were the changes of how people thought. And how they understood the world. Einstein in 1905 publishes his first theories of relativity. Nietzsche, the philosopher, begins to talk about God in some new ways at that time in history. The Austrian uh, uh, psychiatrist and psychologist Freud begins to challenge our understandings of, of human personality. Darwin makes some stunning claims. Well, it's in that world, it's at that moment, a hundred years ago, when a handful of Eastern Illinois Christian families, none of whom had been to college, get this idea. The idea was to establish a school where there would be the integration of faith and learning. A kind of school where their kids and other kids could come and get ready for a world that had not yet arrived. The future. And so in the fall of 1907, in a little town called Georgetown, Illinois, in one room with one teacher named Mary Nesbitt, what we know today as Olivet Nazarene University began. During that first year, those founding families pooled their resources, mortgaged their own farms, and bought two large farms side by side, not far from Georgetown, out on Illinois Route 1, 140 acres and 140 acres side by side. And they laid out the drawings for a campus and beside the campus was going to be a new town, brand, brand new city. And they were going to farm part of the land. And on the back acreage of that property was coal. 
and they were going to have uh, revenue from the coal and from the farming and from the sale of houses to finance the college. The, the first president of Olivet, his salary, I've seen the little uh, handwritten note, his salary was tied to the coal revenue from the farm. So after one year in Georgetown, the school moved out to this new community, and they named that little town Olivet, Illinois. It had not existed before then. Olivet, Illinois. That's where the school began then to grow. In the next few years, people began to hear about this new school, and they began to come. You see, that's very fertile ground. It's like this farm ground here in Indiana. Anything you plant almost will grow. So they planted that idea with prayer, and the school took root and began to grow, and the campus was built there. Now, it's always difficult to finance a privately financed uh, school. It's hard today, but it was particularly difficult in those days because everything had to be done for the first time. And uh, by 1912, the early families decided that they had to have some help. The school was established in 1907. The Church of the Nazarene was established in 1908. And some of those families became Nazarenes in 1908. And so after just a couple of years, they offered their school to the Church of the Nazarene. And that was a marriage made in heaven where the church adopted this new college. It became Olivet Nazarene College. And students began to pour in, not just from Illinois and Indiana, but Ohio and Kentucky and Missouri and all around Iowa. It grew and developed. Well, the school did very well until it got into the 1920s. And in trying to stay up front and grow for growth and all of that, uh, Olivet just simply got out in front of itself financially. And in 1926, in spite of all the sacrifice and all of the hard work, the university had to declare bankruptcy. The federal court stepped in and took possession of all of the assets of the college and uh, decided the only thing to do was to shut the school down, sell off the assets, and pay what they could pay. So the date was announced when they were going to sell. The dream that had flourished in those early decades now was going to die. On the afternoon that the the, uh, auction was to take place on the courthouse steps in Danville, Illinois, a crowd gathered. Some folks wanted to buy the... Uh, coal rights. Somebody wanted to buy this tract of farmland. Somebody else wanted to buy some property that still uh, could build houses on. So they're all ready. It's like vultures circling around the school. And as they began to open the bids, a rather remarkable thing happened. A tall, relatively young man stepped forward from the back of the crowd and in a firm, loud voice made a bid for everything. He said, I'll buy everything. And he gave a dollar amount. Well, nobody there was prepared to match that bid. I mean, they just wanted this or that or the other. The man's name was T.W. Willingham. He was a Nazarene pastor at Danville First Church of the Nazarene and was the treasurer of the school and felt particularly responsible, though it was not his fault, that the school had gotten into bankruptcy. So after the bankruptcy had happened, he'd gone to churches and families and friends and said, we've got to keep the school alive. And he'd raised just enough money on that day, to buy the school back. He was elected president the next day. It's one way to do it. (laughs) Just buy the school. But Olivet Olivet students didn't miss one day of classes in all of that. God is faithful. 
For the next 13 years, Dr. Willingham led the school through the days of the Great Depression, and those were difficult days. But the school continued to grow and develop, and it looked like it would finally break forth into a great future when a very devastating thing happened in November 1939. In the middle of the night, on a Saturday night, with most of the students gone, fire struck the campus. And they did the best they could do, and they called for community people to come. There was no professional fire department, and they carried water. But I talked to some folks who were there that night. One man told me, standing out front of buildings, hearing pianos dropping through the floors. When the sun came up on that Sunday morning, a weary kind of ragtag circle of men and women, students, faculty, community people, stood in a limp circle watching their future go up in smoke. 1939, Great Depression, clouds of World War II on the horizon. How would the school ever survive that kind of a devastating blow? God is faithful. And another dramatic thing happened, but it didn't happen in Illinois or even in Indiana. It happened a thousand miles away two days later. The fire was on a, Sunday, a Saturday night. Tuesday morning, a businessman in Boston, Massachusetts, was doing what he did every morning on the way to office. On the way to the office, he would stop in a little diner, sit at the counter, drink a cup of coffee, read that morning edition of the Boston Globe. And as he's turning the pages, his eyes fell on a little filler, really, just to make the column come out. The filler said, Olivet College, Olivet, Illinois, destroyed by fire. Boston Globe, two days later. He lingered on that for a moment, thought about it, but then went on. Later the morning, later that morning, though, and as he's at his desk at work, that came back to him. Olivet College, Olivet, Illinois, destroyed by fire. So he got up from his desk and he went down the hall and he got into a large storeroom and went to a filing cabinet and pulled out a large drawer, worked his way back, pulled out the file marked Illinois, carried it to a table, began to look through it. And sure enough. The insurance company where he worked in Boston, Massachusetts, had a small insurance policy on this campus at Olivet, Illinois. Not nearly enough to rebuild after a fire like that. But nonetheless, he's seeing a liability. He's seeing his company is going to have to pay out some dollars. As he's standing there working his way through the Illinois file, he came to another folder. It was marked St. Viator's College, Bourbonnais, Illinois. St. Viator's College was a very fine Roman Catholic school in Bourbonnais, Illinois, just south of Chicago, that had folded, it had closed two years before under the weight of the Depression. So I want you to get the picture this morning. Here is a man a thousand miles away, two days after this fire. He's standing in a filing room. In one hand, he has a college without a campus at Olivet, Illinois. And on the other hand, he has a campus without a college in Bourbonnais, Illinois. To shorten the story, the settlement on the insurance claim included the campus at Olivet. So Olivet Nazarene College moved in 1940 from Olivet, Illinois, 90 miles north, to the campus of Bourbonnais, Illinois, where we are today. And when Olivet arrived there, there were four buildings and 40 acres But what had seemed like a tragedy, it seemed like a death blow, 
became, in fact, a great blessing because in that moment, uh, Olivet began to grow. We now have 240 acres, 40, 50, 60 buildings, 4,632 students. How does that happen? God is faithful. And the faithfulness of God is matched by the faithfulness of folks just like you who year in and year out pray for Olivet and support Olivet and encourage kids to come and look at the campus. I don't know what this week will hold in your life. There will probably be some tough days. I'm just here to remind you, whatever happens, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in. God is faithful. Thank you, Dr. Bowling. I need to be reminded from time to time, don't you?